Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. In the book of Habakkuk, and chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, Call for help, but you do not listen, or cry to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and a dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. And then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. We turn to the New Testament and we come to the book of 2 Peter and we're in chapter 3, verse 3 through 13. 2 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires they will say where is this promise coming sorry where is this coming he promised ever since our fathers died everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Would you welcome um, up the front with me 
uh, Mike Russell. Give him a little clap, round of applause, some hoots and hollers. Welcome to City Light Church, North Adelaide, Mike Russell. I've known Mike uh, for many years in different ways um, and uh, not to you know, blow Mike's trumpet too much, but Mike um, is a, um, a published author. Um, you can ask him about that later. Um, he is also, um, in my opinion, brother, a, a man who knows the scriptures really well and desires to teach them really well. But the other thing I just wanted to commend you, uh, to, uh, you about is that you are, you're a real pastor of God's people. And I, as a brother in Christ and as a member of God's family, have been pastored by you. Um, several years ago, I went through a really tough patch in ministry. Um, and yeah, Mike, you reached out to me in those times and you cared deeply for me. Um, and so I just want you to meet Mike, who's not just a guy who knows the word really well, but he lives it out, um, knows the grace of God, lives it out in practice. So it's good to have you with us, brother. Well, it's a real privilege to be along here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm really looking forward to well, today and joining with you and uh, just sharing some things of God with you, Jacko, and also with us, the church family. Um, can you tell us a bit about your family and also your church that you are pastoring? I'm a pastor at East. St. George's McGill is the name of the church, an evangelical church. We have about 120 people come along. Uh, we're aiming to be the same kind of demographic as the suburb around, and we're still a little bit older and perhaps a little bit whiter, but we're, we're getting there. We're reaching out. It's going all right. Uh, my wife's called Allie. We have four kids, 19, 18, 15, and 15. So we finished with twins. Uh, if you don't know, you, most of you probably wouldn't. The way you find out that you're going to have twins is with the sonographer. That's the person doing the ultrasound. And the one thing you don't want when you're going in for that is news. So the lady said, uh, we've got some news for you. My heart sank. And she said, there are two. And my heart rose. Oh, well, that's better than some kind of problem. Uh, and then she said, at least I think there are only two. <laughs> and then one of the longest pauses of my life Yes, there were only two. A couple of questions. Like, what brings you great joy in serving in your role as a pastor? And, um, yeah, what are the challenges you face as well as a Christian living in these days? I think great joy comes from when things that are good for Jesus' causes come through difficulty. When it's been hard, whether it be you know, long-term, you've stuck it out teaching kids and the kids have grown up and suddenly you see they know their Bible well and they believe it. Or... A difficult thing can be a difficult conversation and you have the conversation and you weren't looking forward to it, but it went all right or at least you were winsome and said what needed to be said. Uh, so those are great things. Uh, or sometimes it's a public debate that's really hard and you were nervous about but it happened and Jesus was commended. Uh, so those kinds of things give me great joy um, because they're hard one things but they're good for Jesus, yeah. Uh, so, was it challenges? Yeah. I think some of the hard things, are, Paul, the Apostle Paul at one point talks about uh, setting forth the whole counsel of God. And I think it can be easier to be a Christian and maybe even a, a father and a pastor and say the things that are easy to say, uh, but harder to be commending the whole counsel of God, no matter what God says and the way it applies, being willing to stand behind that uh, especially at the points when the person opposite you, you think, well, I'm not sure how they're going to take this if I actually say what I believe, but it feels in the conversation like it's time. Uh, I think those are the challenges. And when there are, uh, there are people increasingly you come across who really dislike 
Bible-believing Christians. And so owning that kind of a, a title publicly or in a conversation, I think that that's increasingly hard. Yeah. Last question before we hand over to you. What, what do you love the most about Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. I love that I can look back, I've been a Christian about 30 years now, and see that the choices that I made that were clearly choices for Jesus or to spend more time on things of him or to make decisions about marriage and family, but a whole bunch of other things have borne fruit over the years. You can see, yeah, those decisions Jesus has honoured in various ways. So I love that about Jesus. I love that though I continue to be uh, kind of lousy in various ways and uh, annoying or any number of things that uh, Jesus wasn't, that he's still there for me still loves me, that his death still counts for me all these years later. Uh, yeah, I love that I know what my purpose is. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you with us. I'm going to hand over to you. Um, I'll go and grab your thing and we'll go. So thanks. Yes, we're in Habakkuk. And it's going to help you if you can see Habakkuk. We'll move into some of the places where uh, we haven't read. So just be ready for that. Uh, on the screen, we're going to kick off with Jacko told me that you like to have an outline. So I'm going to sort through. It won't be up there for long. You might like to take a photo of it. I'm going to pray and then we'll get to it. Yes, our Father God, we'd love your help this morning because sometimes we're muddled in our thinking. We know your word is good for us, but sometimes we find it hard to understand. And this guy, he lived a long time ago. So please help us now as we think on what Habakkuk said, what you said to him, how that applies to us today, that you might really lift our eyes to who you are, how you'd have us think and live. Help me as I preach and us as we listen, that we might truly hear you and respond well. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever got to the point, maybe recently, where you've had enough of the wretchedness in the world and hearing about it. Maybe you've had enough about the latest news item about Mr. Putin over in Ukraine. Or maybe it's personally. Uh, again, you see some kind of failure, some kind of, oh, why did I do that? And it's easy to say, how long will this go on? Or locally, uh, did you notice the latest scandal, important scandal, is one with the Australian casinos. Here's one summary of the Bell Report into Star Entertainment Group. It included misleading conduct, criminal activities, funding organised crime, facilitating money laundering, consorting with criminals, sending false documents to banks, and fraud. So that those running casinos could be called criminals which in a way isn't surprising considering their entire business model is based on exploiting people. But we heard in the last week that the punishment is a $100 million fine, the maximum possible, and an indefinite loss of their casino licence. Still, the New South Wales Casino Commission will appoint a manager to allow Stars Casino to operate while the licence is suspended. And why might we care about this here in Adelaide? Well, partly because we're talking about the stock code SGR on the Australian Stock Exchange, a company that could well be in your superannuation fund. And so here's another week and you're hearing something you don't really want to hear. Do you ever get to the point of having had enough, heard enough of the latest evil, even tired of asking God to fix it up? If so, you're in a similar place to Habakkuk at the start of his book, 
the book that we call Habakkuk. The book starts with the prophet praying to God along just those lines. Did you catch it when Simon read it? Here's how it starts. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife, conflict abounds, and so the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that many have asked questions of God like this over the centuries. What might surprise you is that the book of Habakkuk has not only the question asked, but God gives an answer, quite a few answers actually, and talks to Habakkuk, and there's a to and fro over this complaint. Habakkuk himself, he was writing in the seventh century BC. By then, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, they had been conquered and destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians, that empire. Destroyed, we're told in the Bible, because of Israel's wickedness, because of their rejection of God. But now the two southern tribes that remain had become similarly bad. And that's what Habakkuk is complaining about. So Habakkuk is more talking about the casino kind of problem in his own land than the wars of Russia in another land. He's looking around him. He's saying, how long will this violence and injustice go on in in the nation you call your nation, God, in Israel? Well, before we come to God's answer, though, let me give you two asides about this complaint. First, you might have thought, if you were listening closely, isn't that a bit of a selfish way of putting the question, Habakkuk? Verse 2, how long must I call for help? But you do not listen. Why do you make me look at injustice? You might think, well, he's not the only one looking at injustice, right? Well, we do need to remember Habakkuk is God's specially chosen prophet in the nation God has specially called his own. And so uh, we don't have to take Habakkuk's phrasing as something to take issue with. He's saying, hey God, you appointed me as your special prophet. You've given me special words in your nation. So why do you make me, of all people, look on injustice? Or a second aside, uh, notice the logic in verses 3 and 4 that it is worth serious thought. What I mean is the therefore at the start of verse 4 and the so that at the end of verse 4. I don't know if we can get that verse 4 up on the screen, uh, but look at the so that, maybe in your own Bible. uh, It says, the wicked hem in the the righteous, this is the middle of verse 4, the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. That's implying, perhaps controversially to our ears, that you can expect more injustice if the righteous, if Christians are surrounded by those who reject God. Now, some might object to this, but let me say, uh, have you noticed you even find atheists who acknowledge the social justice benefits to the community of having those who attend church? So Andrew Lee, I might get a picture of him, he's the Federal Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury. He's an atheist. He has a PhD in social science from Harvard, and he writes of the benefits to the community of church attendance. Just to grab a little bit from him, he says, traditionally, those who have gone to church have been more likely to volunteer in their local communities, even putting aside their religious volunteering. They're more likely to donate money, even putting aside their religious giving. Churchgoers are more likely to donate blood, and then he goes on and on. But 
The point is, it's very defensible, even empirically, even listening to an atheist talk about it, that more Christians means less of various kinds of injustice, as Habakkuk implies in this prayer. But his prayer in particular is not about that. It's about, come on God, what's going on here? How long must I look at this injustice? And so God responds in verses five to 11. And uh, we're interested, right? What is going to, God gonna say about this injustice that Habakkuk sees? And the summary is just there in verse six, where he says, does God, I am raising up the Babylonians. The idea is simple in a way. God saying, yes, there is wickedness in Israel. I'm appalled by it, says God. So I'm going to judge and punish you Israelites by the hand of this other wicked nation, the Babylonians. And indeed, that is what happened in the end. When the Babylonians came to attack those two southern tribes of Israel, they came in a couple of waves. The first was in about 597 BC. That's, by the way, the basis on which we think this prophecy must date from just before then. That is the late 7th century, the late 600s BC. Now, we can see this modern-day map and get a sense of what's going on here. Uh, when I say we can see, I can see how small it is, so you probably can't see. But if you, uh, if you see here, this is the area that we're talking about, the Middle East broadly. Uh, down here is the kind of area where uh, Babylon would have been. Incidentally, uh, up further up there is where the Assyrians came down from earlier. Uh, so down here uh, is around where Babylon was. So they would have gone across and up over the green bits because you don't want to go through the desert and lose your army on the way. Uh, so the Babylonians had a long way to go. That's why it was a bit inconceivable that these Babylonians could come and conquer. But sure enough, they did right at the early 500s. So up and around here and then down. And they did indeed in two waves destroy that nation that remained of Israel. That's an important part of the history of the Old Testament. Good to get your head around some of those dates. So. Here's the news, given to Habakkuk ahead of time. Yeah, I can see what's been going on. I'm going to clean it up. And the way I'm gonna do it, says God, is sending the Babylonians. Now, in case Habakkuk thinks God doesn't know how bad the Babylonians are, God spells it out for him in verses six to 11. So he calls them that ruthless and impetuous people in verse six. In verse seven, he calls them a feared and dreaded people. In verse 11, he calls them guilty people. So God's saying, yeah, I know how bad they are, right? I know how feared and dreaded they are. I know they're a guilty people, right? Proud in a bad sense. Their strength is their own God. Even so, I think you deserve to have them conquer you. That is my answer to your question. That is my solution to the injustice in your land, Habakkuk. Can you feel the sort of sense of recoil at this piece of news? In fact, it's worse to give you a sense that if we heard that God had decided to send in the Russians, if I can risk this illustration, to conquer Australia, right? Because God in the Old Testament had said Israel was one special nation, which he hasn't said to Australia. That's not how it works since the coming of Jesus. But can you feel the horror of God's response? We would think to ourselves, okay, well, yeah, we had a, we had a casino. We had plenty of other problems, all right? But the Russians, 
and no, nothing less than a full conquest of our nation? Is that really, really God the best way? No wonder God says in verse five, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Part of the horror of this response is that Habakkuk sees that he himself will not escape the judgment that is coming. God isn't just going to punish the ones committing the worst of the violence that Habakkuk sees, he's going to punish the whole land, including everyone there. So, uh, do understand that this is part of the logic of Christianity. You might want to ask God, why haven't you done something about all the injustice that we see? And part of what God says is, well, yeah, I'm going to clean it all up. But when I do, there's no reason I shouldn't start with you. Oh, that guy Mike up the front, right? Because we're all part of the problem in some way or other. Now, we might think ourselves a small part of the problem in our world. We could rightly say, hey, there are way worse people out there than me, right? That's what people say. People say, well, I haven't been too bad. I hope I've been good enough for heaven. That's a common thing I hear people say. But no, do realize that doesn't cut it. For if we, any of us, went into heaven as we are, we'd, we'd mess it up. If you imagine it as a perfect world, that it will be. And we still have our own sins that are still unpunished. And so we would have this undealt with guilt if we were there in heaven as we are now. So no, when God comes to clean things up, he will clean everything up. Every person, every heart, including you and me. He can't just fix the casinos and leave all the other problems when finally justice is brought to bear. We inevitably, therefore, underestimate the scale of the moral problem in our world and in ourselves. We're too slow to confess, even to ourselves, our own contribution, our own sin, and so we're shocked when we hear God say, yes, that's fair to Israel, that Babylon go in and conquer them ruthlessly. You know, the other day, I was at a 20th wedding anniversary party, first one of these I've been to, and I got chatting to my oldest friend. We were in kindergarten together, primary school, high school. He's now an upstanding doctor in urology, so conversations are a bit different to average with him, especially as we both become more middle-aged men. Now, uh, towards the end of the party, very long party, it was just the two of us, and I raised something we hadn't spoken about in 30 years. I said, do you remember that time you and I and that other old great primary school mate we had, three of us went out to the movies. You remember how we stole a bunch of stuff from a shop afterwards? What, what happened there? Who, who was really leading that? And he paused and he said, no, you, you're remembering that as year seven, but that must have been year nine. My parents didn't let me out before then. And then he said, no, I remember it well. He explained the other mate had a habit of shoplifting in those days, how he had this setup of hiding an expensive magazine inside a cheap newspaper, just putting cash on the table and leaving. And how he had a locked filing cabinet back at home where he stashed his stolen goods where his parents couldn't get in of how his friend's dad picked the lock one day 
And so his friend got busted. And when his friend's dad found out his son's stash, he came over to my friend's house and confronted him. And it was confronting, this guy was a big guy, right? And my friend's parents, they weren't home. Uh, and so what happened in the end, the two dads got together with the two sons and gave it all back, at least at one shop. But after that, he said, never went back really to that friend's house, it was too weird. And so I understood for the first time what happened to that friendship of those years ago. And I told him, you know, I started shoplifting after that incident for a few years. And it was easy to rationalize it a bit, right? To think, well, it was the friend's fault. They, they kind of set me down that path. And so play it down in one way or another. You know, God doesn't want us to do that. And so he gives us books like Habakkuk in the Bible to show you and me the scale of the judgment and punishment and cleansing required and deserved. Israel, as a nation, deserved an entire destruction of their nation, including everyone who was there, because everyone contributes in various ways to the corrupt culture. Yes, the ones who lead in the thefts, yes, those who follow, yes, those who own the corrupt casinos in their super, yes, those who commit the frauds, yes, all the nation commits in some way to the national sins because there are both individual and there are corporate sins and there will be an individual and a corporate judgment at the end. And God wants us to look at this and say, yes, I deserve your judgment, God. Yes, we deserve your judgment, God. Please have mercy. I want you to remember this. If you're ever tempted to complain that God lets evil go on for too long, right? I want you to remember God's message, he is coming to fix it up. Whether it be through the Babylonians for a time or through Jesus' final coming for all time. But while he is coming, he's also delaying his coming. He delayed for a while with the Babylonians to give them a chance to repent. He's delaying now with Jesus' second coming to give us a chance to repent. And in fact, it's good that God has delayed a very long time in sending Jesus. He's delaying because he's generous. He's waiting to give everyone a chance, even more chance, even more time to repent, to turn to Jesus so that Jesus might take in our place our punishment, our death that we deserved. God's waiting to clean up the world because without that forgiveness, we face that final judgment as those who will be punished ourselves. And so at times when you might be tempted to complain to God of not caring about justice, just slow down. Slow down. You might find you're urging him to bring about the destruction of your friends or your relatives who haven't accepted Jesus or even of yourself if you yourself are still trying to work out, am I going to accept him as my Lord and Savior? Because as more time passes, more friends and relatives and people across the world accept Jesus, like I did. After a few years of shoplifting and more besides. I'm so glad God delayed his coming, his fixing up of all the injustice in the world as far as 1993. So I could repent and be saved. It's marvelous. How many more will be like that in the end? Well, we'll find out.
So have a look at 2 Peter. We had it read. How do we say it here? 2 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 7. Just think now about these words we had read earlier. Chapter 3, verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. That's the same word that created the world. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, I'm so glad God is patient. Are you glad about that as well? Well, Habakkuk goes on to ask another question. He's not done yet. He asks, okay, God, I understand. But let me ask you this, God. How can you be just and fair while you use the extra wicked to punish the less wicked? First of all, verse 12, Habakkuk does accept what God has just said. He does some active listening. Ever been taught about the importance of active listening, right? Second part of verse 12, he says, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. Can you see that halfway through? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. He's saying, okay, I hear you. You're sending the Babylonians, I get it. Then having heard this, the next question has a few parts. And one key part is summarized in verse 13. He says, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I just read out the second part of verse 13 there. His question is, how can this be okay? Why use the really wicked to judge the less wicked? You could punish yourself in various ways, so why do you use the wicked at all? Why is this part of the plan, God? But verse 17 adds the more important element to the question. He's thinking of the Babylonians, but the question goes way beyond just that time frame. Verse 17 asks, is he, the Babylonian, to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Which is asking basically, will this go on forever? Will these Babylonians never get what they deserve? How can this cycle end if this is the way it goes, where the more wicked punish the less wicked over and over again? And then he waits for God's answer. Uh, And he says he's waiting. Uh, And so here's how it goes in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. It's like, well, this, this is a big question. I am really keen to hear the answer, he's saying. And he's saying, well, I'm not speaking anymore now. I'm, I'm just listening to hear the answer. It's like he's dropped the mic. Over to you, God. But he also explains his motivation before we hear God's second answer. Listen to his motivation, chapter 2, verse 1. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. Notice this isn't quite what you expected him to say, right? You probably expected him to say, and what answer I am to get for this complaint. But no, no, rather it says, what answer I'm to give to this complaint. That is, he's looking for an answer so he can give it to others. 
Here is the attitude then of a faithful ambassador of God, not of an antagonistic attacker of God, do you see it? He's looking for an answer, so he knows what answer he is to give when others ask him and push him. And so let me ask, is this your kind of disposition? That you expect God to be in the right and you want to defend his ways, but sometimes you're not quite sure how to do it. And if so, I praise God for the way he's been working in your heart. That is, this is such a, a God-centered, blessed way to think. If you think that way, you're thinking a little like this prophet, Habakkuk. One who sees himself as having a kind of job to speak on behalf of God, like you might speak on behalf of a family member. Not always sure what the right defense is. Well, that's okay. Even Habakkuk, even prophets of God weren't always sure what the right answer was. But he was sure that his loyalty was with God. And if so, if God that disposition, you're keen, are you ready to hear what God's going to say? What is God's response then to Habakkuk's second question. Well, the key is in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 2. And it is one of the purple passages of the Bible, certainly of the Old Testament. It repays close study. And we don't have time to unpack all the themes in these three verses. So rich and deep are these themes. But what you have are the key themes of the Christian message. Have a look at verses 2 and 3 and see if, as I read it out again, you can pick how many of the themes of Christianity are here. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What we're hearing here in advance in these verses is that there will be a a revelation, a Christian revelation, in fact, that is special news that can be written down and spread. The news of the gospel, we call it now. You can even uh, put it in a plane when we sing and uh, uh, some guy that you guys are going to help is going to not write it on tablets, but uh, grab it in a Bible or however the people he's flying to can hear it. Uh, This is a revelation that a herald can run with, even in a plane. And we hear as well there's a fulfillment that was to come at an appointed time, at the time of the New Testament, as we call it now. And we're told that the message speaks of an end, that is, a judgment at the end of all things, but that the end lingers. It can seem like it takes a while, but when it comes, it will come quickly. That's verses 2 and 3. We don't have time to unpack that because, well, it would take a very long time. But really important Christian themes there. In verse 4, you have even greater riches. For here, chapter 2, verse 4, is a verse quoted by Paul in Romans 1. In fact, Paul makes this verse a centerpiece of the entire argument of the book of Romans. Have a look in your own time, Romans 1.17. It's about how every individual person must respond himself or herself in faith if they want to live eternally. Here's chapter 2, verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Here's the idea. Yes, those enemy Babylonians are wretches. They're a wicked enemy nation but what will matter in the end is not 
which nation you are part of, not who is your enemy in military terms. But what will matter is whether you yourself have been a loyal individual, that is faithful to the true God. What matters is whether you individually have trusted God and stuck to that trust to your death. Whether therefore you have a personal faith in God through Jesus, that's what will matter most in the end. Uh, you know, there's a lady in our church. Uh, her name's Di. For years, she prayed for her unbelieving husband. She was a firm believer in the Bible. Her husband, he was sometimes socially involved with church people, but not that often. And for a long time, he hadn't come to believe himself. It was like that for decades. I'd see him occasionally. And she prayed for him all that time. And I remember in a Bible study, praying with her, for him, with the whole Bible study. And you know, if you ever asked him, if you got the opportunity, which was rare, but I knew his answer, if you asked him, he'd say, my wife has enough faith for both of us. And you know, I never took him seriously when he said that. I thought it was a kind of way of dodging the question, right? But you know, when he was near to death, in a hospital ward, a Korean pastor was doing the rounds. And through some coincidence or God incidence, he had come across this pastor, or Di had, and somehow an invitation had gone out, yes, you can come and see me. And Peter, near his death, was more open than usual to receiving a visit. And Peter, in the conversation, said his usual thing when it came to it. Ah, oh, my wife has enough faith for both of us. And you know that Korean pastor, he was blunt. He said, your wife's faith cannot count for you, Peter. You have to have your own faith in Jesus. And you know, he could have quoted this passage and said, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, not by his nations, not by his parents, not by his pastors, and not by his wives, by his. And for the first time, Peter understood it. And he prayed a prayer to accept Jesus personally. And you know, to be honest, I did feel a little embarrassed that I'd never been as bold as that pastor. But I was delighted that Peter turned before the end. You know, the funeral was a shock to many because the Korean guy didn't stop being bold, right? And he told the story of Peter's conversion and basically uh, the vast majority of the room had no idea about this. And it was all about the need to repent and so on. And Peter had done it and how marvelous all of that was. You can imagine the, the funeral and all the people there just recoiling a little bit. I was sitting up the back and yeah, I could see it. As everyone there was called to accept Jesus for themselves personally. And so, make sure you've accepted Jesus personally, won't you? That you're not resting on someone else's faith. That that trust is your own. So you've expressed it to God. Maybe just in the quietness of your own heart, or, but some way that is from you. That isn't just going through some motions of saying, well, I come along to church, that'll do it. It comes from you. If you're not sure what you'd pray, you could come and call, talk to Jacko, he would love that. We have to close. Habakkuk 
he asks the biggest of questions. Why all the injustice? Why all the injustice in Israel, just for starters? And he gets a shorter term answer and a longer term one. Shorter term, well, the destruction of Israel. Longer term, an end where the judgment will come, but the righteous will escape. That is, they escape by a personal trust in this name he didn't know, but we know now in the name of the Lord Jesus. The whole of chapter three is then him pouring out a, a prayer of thanks. Right? And so that's a good way for us to close as well. To close with a prayer of thanks that this is how it is. That God has given us this way out to be righteous, to live forever with him. Why don't we pray? Well, our Father God, we do look around us and within ourselves and, and sometimes get dismayed and just want to turn away from the terrible things in our world. And we want to admit that so, Father, and acknowledge that you see it too and that you feel it more deeply than we do. We want to give you thanks for Habakkuk, not only for his question, but for the way he listened carefully to the response. Help us to listen like that. Help us to be more and more ambassadors like he was, understanding the answers to give. But most of all, please, help us to grip tightly, each one of us here, personally, to the Lord Jesus, that we might escape the judgment to come, that we might, with great joy, be welcomed in on that day that the Lord Jesus returns and makes all things right. Help our hearts, we pray, therefore, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.